Welcome to Export Stories, a podcast featuring first-person insights from the wide and sometimes crazy world of U.S. exporting. Your host for Export Stories is Betsy Olam, president of Olam International, a U.S.-based export management company. Betsy has made a 37-year career of developing global sales and distribution for U.S. companies. Like you, she loves great stories. You don't have to be an exporter to enjoy the stories we're going to share with you each month. We're so glad you've joined us. Now, here is Betsy to introduce today's podcast. Hello, ciao, bonjour, hola, konnichiwa, ni hao, marhaben, namaste, and shalom. Welcome to Export Stories 2023. I'm your host, Betsy Olam. So, you're going along, growing your export business, and it's very exciting. You're really pleased with yourself. The time comes to meet with your tax advisor. He or she explains what you need to do, what options you have, and then it's the end of the presentation. Wait a minute. He or she never brings up the possibility of creating an IC disc. It happens, but that's okay because you are going to listen to today's guest educate all of us about this beautiful potential tax break known as the IC disc. And the next time you meet with your tax advisor, you will sound so darn smart. But first, a word from our sponsor. We are so fortunate to have Rosenthal and Rosenthal as our sponsor for today's episode of Export Stories Podcast. They are extremely valuable to the export community. Let me explain. Rosenthal and Rosenthal is the leading factoring, asset-based lending, purchase order financing, D2C, and e-commerce inventory financing firm in the United States. They began as a family business back in 1938 and are still a family business today. For more than 85 years, they've been empowering entrepreneurs and financing businesses across multiple industries by providing the working capital and resources companies need to grow and compete in today's marketplace. With unmatched financial capacity and decades of experience, Rosenthal remains best in class for all your creative financing needs. Rosenthal's Export Factoring Program is a liquidity and risk mitigation tool that allows sellers to get paid at shipment on international sales. Sellers can receive up to 90% of the invoice value, less a small discount at shipment of goods. Rosenthal purchases invoices on a non-recourse basis, meaning the sellers don't bear the risk of buyer non-payment. More and more businesses are struggling to meet their banking covenants due to the impact that COVID, supply chain issues, and labor shortages have had on their sales. It's Rosenthal's opinion that more businesses will continue to seek non-bank financing solutions, and they expect a very active 2023-2024. Rosenthal is proud to have been appointed by XM as a delegated authority lender. They are excited to work with exporters across the country to provide non-bank financing solutions to help grow their company internationally. Please visit them at rosenthalinc.com.
So today we are fortunate to have as our guest Amit Mather, co-founding partner of Quantitax. Amit formerly served as an international tax manager in the Cleveland office of PwC and their National Export Incentive Tax Practice, and as a director at WTP Advisors in their IC Disc Export Practice. Amit is a licensed CPA with a degree from Case Western Reserve University and has worked in this field for over 25 years. Hello, Amit. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Betsy. So nice to be with you again. Yes, yes. We we saw each we met at a National District Export Council conference this year, and here you are on the podcast. It's pretty cool. <laughs> so, <laughs> Um, so I just gave a fairly generic introduction, but we really want to know more about your background story and how you came to co-create Quantitax. So you want to kind of tell us all about that? Sure, sure. Glad to. Um, and thank you so much again for having me. Appreciate it. Hopefully we can provide some some uh, good value and export stories <laughs> or not to be export uh, savings stories. Uh, but yeah, as you mentioned, uh, I was a uh, I was with a national team uh, at PricewaterhouseCoopers and PricewaterhouseFirst, which became PricewaterhouseCoopers and PwC. And this team did nothing but maximize uh, export incentives, tax incentives for companies. Uh, the IC DISC that we're going to talk about a little bit, the DISC, the FISC, the ETI exclusion. For those have been those have been exporting for a while, they might recognize some of those those acronyms as uh, great mm -hmm. deductions that they've gotten from the government um, as a reward essentially for making or selling products that are at least partially produced in the U.S. and having them uh, used abroad, whether it's by direct export or or uh, or indirect export that we'll talk about. So that's all that our, our team did. And, uh, you know, the EU and WTO, our trade partners, it's really huge fans of these <laughs> these export incentives and do do some pressure from some large uh, competitors of U.S. exporters. Congress um, uh, finally in uh, in 2000 um, by 2006 largely had uh, taken most of these export incentives and, and you know, they had essentially repealed them as far as public companies go. But thankfully, the IC disk that we're going to talk about today is still a great tool to uh, a great and legitimate tool. And I'm glad you didn't call it a, a loophole because people sometimes hear, oh, little known tax things must be a loophole. loophole. But uh, it's certainly a intended government incentive. But the IC disk only good for private companies, essentially. Oh, and, okay. uh, so, yeah, so we saw a uh, opportunity, uh, some, some uh, colleagues of mine at PwC that, wow, there's a lot of companies out there that are not taking advantage of this likely or not fully maximizing it. Um, and so we decided to focus on, go out on our own and focus on bringing some of these incentives to uh, closely held companies and mostly through their CPA firm. So that's a little bit of our, our backstory. Uh, most of our uh, work in helping folks out with this wonderful incentive comes through trusted advisors like, uh, accounting firms, financial advisors, uh, insurance advisors, anyone who's close, attorneys, close and, and familiar with the, the business. Um, and then we do have a, a little bit that we, we do connect with uh, uh, directly through places like the District Export Council, where, where you and I met, 
and, mm-hmm. uh, and other other avenues. So really, that's that's kind of our backstory story. My partner Dave Reed uh, was also uh, in that part of that same team at uh, PwC, and um, you know our cl- our clients then were you know UTC and Boeing and all the large exporters that were able to to uh, to claim export incentive benefits from the government at the time. Interesting. So your focus is private, private companies, which is very interesting. Yep. I see how that came about. So, all right, what do the letters ICDISC stand for? And then in <laughs> layman's terms, you know, what what is it? Right, right. So uh, it stands for Interest Charge Domestic International Sales Corporation, which right off the bat just is like, what is this crazy anachronistic name in domestic international sales corporation so really if uh you know if you were to describe what this uh company and this incentive does because it is a separate company that one has to set up to claim these benefits um it really does nothing it uh, generally it was designed by congress to be a paper company that would assist you in exporting um, but it doesn't have to actually uh, perf- actually assist you in, in doing any exports to actually uh, for you to actually get the benefits from it. So it's hmm. um, interest charge domestic international sales corporation. Ninety nine percent of them, I would say, are set up as just paper companies that are, become qualified to become this special type of entity, which is tax exempt and helps you. Uh, and that you can use to help facilitate your exports like a a commission agent would. But in order to get the savings, you don't uh, actually need to have this entity do anything other than exist as a uh, properly equipped and, um, you know, by certified, if you will, as a ICDIS company. So the way the savings work in in a nutshell and in, in layman's terms, I would say, is that if you have an operating company, you also set up one of these IC disc companies. And based on how much export uh, volume you have or export profit you have, you are allowed to pay a deductible commission to this IC disc company, which is allowed to receive the commission for doing, again, absolutely nothing. Uh, receive this commission, it's tax-free, and it just pays the uh commission income that it receives right back to the operating company that's exporting. So you might say, well, geez, I'm getting a deductible commission to pay to a entity that's tax-free. The entity then pays it right back to me. What's the benefit? Because certainly you have the same exact amount of income from the IC discs with it as you would without it, right? It's just money going out to the IC disc and coming right back in. Well, the difference is, Betsy, whatever that amount is, whether it's a dollar, whether it's a billion dollars, whatever that commission amount is that comes back as a dividend, it's taxed at the capital gains rate is no higher than 23.8%, whereas the ordinary rate may be as high as 40.8%, probably uh-huh. somewhere between 30 and 37 for most taxpayers. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, whatever the dividend rate is, it's always lower. So for instance, your ordinary right rate might be at 25%, but whatever amount you have that's exchanged for that ordinary rate to, to dividend to the dividend rate or capital gains rate is going to be maybe 15%. 
or 0%, but no higher than 23.8% for sure. So it, it, it really just converts income to being taxed at a more favorable rate. Is that um, dividend rate, and I, this is because I'm not a tax accountant, and so yeah. I might sound ignorant, but is that a state, are those dividend rates standard? I mean, is it, a, is there a special dividend rate for the disc or this is just, these are just standard dividend rates and you're creating a dividend? No, great, great question. Yeah, it's just a standard dividend rate. It's a, the federal, federal rate. And just like you have uh, tax brackets for your ordinary income, right after you're done with all your deductions and money goes from uh, your company to your individual tax return, there are individual tax rates that are as high as 37% plus Obamacare care tax uh, applicable to some income. So it could be as high as 40.8%, but there's 37%, uh, 33%, different, different brackets that they have, different rates. Okay. And along with those ordinary rates, at each of those levels, there are also dividend rates, which go from zero to 23.8%. Uh, including the Obamacare rate. But the important thing to note is that whatever rate that you're at, unless it's zero, uh, the ordinary rate is always going to be higher than the dividend rate. So okay. uh, by converting, yeah, by converting uh, an amount of a certain amount of our export profits or sales, and there are different ways to calculate how much that that commission that you can pay to the IC disc is, um, you you can get uh, you know savings depending on what your individual tax position is. So if a million dollars, say, goes out to the IC disc, because that's half of your export profits, which is one of the methods that we're allowed to use is 50% of your bottom line export profits, um, that million dollars would then be uh, taxed at the dividend rate versus the ordinary rate. So but whatever that difference is, it might be 6%, might be 10%, might be 13%. But whatever that delta is between your ordinary rate and and the dividend rate at whatever your income level is, that's what the permanent and immediate tax savings would be. And there's nothing uh, aggressive uh, about this at all. This is a government uh, incentive that was designed to reward companies for not just making things, fabricating things in the US, but also selling things that are fabricated in the US or even partially made in the US or grown in the US. Uh, or leased for use outside this. But the key is there's got to be some level of U.S. production to the product, and there's got to be use, expected use outside of the United States. And in some cases, believe it or not, Betsy, the product, if you if it leaves the United States, say, temporarily, but you don't know where it's going to go from there after it's, say, further fabricated by someone else outside the U.S., it, even though it, there's a good likelihood it may come back to the U.S., in some cases, you're even allowed to uh, claim the IC disc benefit there, as long as you don't know for sure that it's coming back to the United States. So very, very generous taxpayer-friendly rules for a lot of these applications of the IC disc that, that folks don't know often. Wow, that's great. And, and say you're a manufacturer and you sell to a, a U.S. company who exports your product overseas. Do you get any benefit if you said to a domestic absolutely. company like a dealer yep. or something yep absolutely so let's say i make something in ohio and i sell it to you in tennessee uh, as long as you don't further manufacture the product maybe you throw it in a kit with something else or maybe you just package it or put your your company's name on it you emblazon it on there as long as you don't 
substantially transform the product in Tennessee, and let's say you export it to Mexico, we're actually both allowed to claim the IC disc uh, benefit on our profits on our respective sale. So my sale to you and, and your sale to say Ford, who might be putting the final product into, uh, let's say it's a, you know, a mud flap for a, for a vehicle, or let's say it's a, a, a spark plug or part of the navigation system or something like that. So as long as you don't further manufacture it in the US, we're both able to claim that benefit. And a lot of times that leads to a sort of one hand washes the other scenario, because I mentioned there's really two things that you've got to uh, make sure of. You've got to make sure there's some level of US production and that, that there's expected use outside the US. Now, as the manufacturer, I don't know where the ultimate you know, expected use outside the US is, but you certainly do. So you could be kind enough to share that information with me and say, hey, Amit, you send me you know, 10,000 spark plugs last month or last year, 3,000 of them, you know, went to uh, foreign customers of mine. On the other hand, you don't know what that requisite amount of U.S. production is, right? Because you can't just bring something in from China and, you know, mark it up and export it and claim it for the ICDS. They wanted to encourage some level of U.S. production as well. But that requisite level of U.S. production, I can then in turn, guarantee to you that yes, we still continue to meet these uh, factors when we make the product in, in Ohio. And so they still qualify for the IC disc. So oftentimes we have companies that'll help each other out by providing either the location, ultimate destination information, if you're the, the final shipper of the, the product, or on the other side of things, is it made in the US or potentially, or partially, excuse me, made in the US? Okay. All right. I'm going to say something. That sounds a little dumb, but just want to clarify. We're talking about manufactured goods. Uh, say, I'm a law, I have a law firm, and we provide legal services in foreign countries. A cert, there's no IC disc for a service that's exported, right? Yeah, that's excellent question. Um, yes, we are talking about hard products for the most part, but there are two categories of services that can qualify for IC disc. So one would be, let's say I sell... Let's say I make an HVAC system and uh, I partially manufacture it in the U.S. and I uh, sell it for use overseas and I qualify the HVAC system for the IC disc. If I also have warranties and uh, installation and things like that that are related and subsidiary is the term to the to the uh, export the item that's being exported and qualified for IC disc, yeah. certainly I can claim those related services, but they have to be related to a hard product, tangible product that's, that's exported. That's one category of services. And the other one is there's a special carve out for architects and engineers and architecture and engineer type type services. So yeah. let's say, yeah, let's say there's a theme park in Dubai that is, you know, a Ferrari themed theme park. And let's say I want to have the best landscape architecture. Uh, you know, I want to use the best experts that there are. And I, so I go to a firm in Columbus, Ohio, that specializes in uh, landscape architecture design for um, theme parks with all our great theme parks that we've got in in, in Ohio. Um, so in, in that case, the, the uh, plans that I might prepare, whether I prepare them in Columbus, whether I prepare them outside the U.S. using subcontractors, 
uh, would all qualify as the architecture firm in uh, Columbus because it's related to a foreign construction project. So it has to be architectural and engineering in nature. Doesn't mean you have to have licensed architects or engineers doing the work. It just means it has to be A&E type stuff in nature. And there's a paragraph or two in the disc regs. It's very generous that, you know, just uses, you have to use applied sciences or mathematical formulas, so on and so forth. So it has to be architectural engineering in nature and related to a actual or proposed foreign construction project. So you're probably thinking of building, uh, you know, and when you hear a construction project, the first thing we think of is buildings or maybe a bridge, tunnel, yeah. something like that. Certainly those things qualify, but the neat thing that is that in addition to those things, um, a facility expansion of an existing uh, item like that would, would qualify, um, as well as, uh, outside the U.S. also includes outer space. So the International <laughs> Space Station, for instance, if you're doing some engineering work for aspects of, of the, the International Space Station or for orbiting satellites, those are explicitly noted as outside the U.S. in export incentive regulations. Definitely outside the U.S. That's, that's, that's cool. And I was going to, you're talking about outer space, I was going to ask you if there really is a Ferrari theme park in uh, Dubai. <laughs> So that is a uh, actual story and um, an actual export story, absolutely. And okay. uh, the way the reason I'd use that one to especially illustrate that is back when they had the they had the sort of construction crisis, if you will, back in Dubai. And even I just saw something the other day. I think it was on the Travel Channel with my son, where they had these you know things that were completed or almost completed, but you know empty hotels sitting there. That uh, yeah. but anyways. I'll, construction came in halt and the, the construction of that Ferrari theme park was actually halted for a long period of time. However, yeah. you were the architecture firm was still able to claim the benefits for uh, that because it was architectural and engineering in nature and it was related to a proposed foreign project. So even time studies or feasibility studies, you know, uh, for I infrastructure products outside the U U projects, excuse me, outside yeah. the U.S., it doesn't even have to be built. It just has to be A&E in nature and related to a proposed or actual foreign construction project. So Sweet. That's sweet. Yeah. That's cool. All right. Yeah. So <clears throat> I'm a private manufacturer, U.S. manufacturer. What might be a reason that I wouldn't qualify for a disc? Sure, sure. So one might be that, you know, you, you're not quite doing enough you call yourself a manufacturer but you're not quite doing enough to the product to meet the um requirements for the ic disc to have the product be uh, manufactured or or produced or grown in the united states you know some folks call themselves a manufacturer they might just be putting on a, a bolt or two to something that's that they have completely made in china and they may think of themselves a manufacturer because they design it and do all the plans for it here in the U.S., prototype, okay. whatnot. But the actual production, let's say they get something made for $100 a unit in China, and all they do here is the quality inspection and you know throw it in a box, they're not going to have enough uh, U.S. production in it to for it to qualify for the IC disc. Another one might be that you do have that U.S. production or you're, you're using a third-party contractor that, that puts some, some level of U.S. production in it that meets the 
the requirements, but just your personal tax situation might be such that exchanging ordinary income for dividend income doesn't help you. So let's say, for example, uh, I've got a manufacturing company and it has a nice $5 million profit. And, you know, a couple million of that, that profit is from exports activity, exports of U.S., partially, at least partially right. U.S. produced goods. So normally I'd say, hey, I've got a million dollars that can be taxed at the dividend rate versus the ordinary rate. That's great. I'm going to save, you know, 100000 or 60000 or whatever my you know difference is between the rates. Yeah. But, but let's say I also, as an individual, own a real estate concern that had a $10 million loss <laughs> coming in, in in that same tax year that I made $5 million from the manufacturing company. Well, on my individual return, I'm already in a position where I've got a, a you know a big loss coming in, and so therefore exchanging dividend for ordinary doesn't doesn't help me because I'm not in a position where I would otherwise be paying ordinary tax because of because of this big loss coming in. So sometimes personal situations like that um, can can be an issue. Another thing is um, if you manufacture in the U.S., you send it to Mexico. But you for further manufacturing, which is normally okay as long as it's outside the U.S. But if you know that it's coming back, if the customer has informed you or you're part of a warranty agreement that tells you exactly how much of what you sell or what you ship to Mexico is coming back to the United States, you wouldn't be eligible to claim the stuff that's coming back to the U.S. But certainly the stuff that doesn't, you would be able to claim the IC disc on. So. Hence yeah. the need for a CPA to advise you. It is it is complicated. I mean, it's a little right, bit complicated. Right. I yeah. get we're trying to make you know explain in simple terms to people, but obviously you need a CPA to advise you on this. Um, you know, I know the IC disc has been around a long time, but it seems like we haven't been hearing about it much. So I I heard you talk about it. Recently, is it having a renaissance today or <laughs> or is it just always been around and sometimes people just don't know about it? Yeah, it's it's one of those things that because the related, the other export incentives that, that benefited uh, public and private companies, there was something called the FISC, which is very yeah, similar okay. to DISC. Yeah. yeah, the ETI exclusion, you know, exporters have been around for a little bit, might remember having to gather this type of information as far back as 1971, depending how how old you are, um, yeah. I, I was one, so I don't remember that that one. Then, but <laughs> me neither. Me neither. <laughs> of course not. Yeah, we. That's why I'm highlighting it because it's so foreign <laughs> to, to to young lady like yourself. Um, but but the, so these have been around for a long time. But again, most of them were were sort of uh, repealed and uh, you know out of the picture by 2006. Um, yeah. And the IC disc itself. Um, did face a couple of threats, not necessarily to the IC disc itself always, but sometimes to the dividend rate, right? Because if the rate isn't any lower for what you get through the IC disc versus what you have ordinarily, there's generally not going to be any any permanent tax benefit. There are some ways you can defer income, but the real, you know, the the great benefit is from from this uh, lower getting taxed at a lower rate on this income. So there have been some talks of the dividend rate being um, uh, being um, uh, basically repealed or, or or basically being you know taxed as the same as ordinary rates. In fact, yeah. one of one of the Biden administration's earlier proposals that didn't didn't go anywhere, but certainly had 
uh, all capital capital gains, qualified dividends, uh, you know, would cease to be taxed at that preferential rate. Um, you know, that you couldn't get the legislature to go along with it and the numbers they needed, but that was something that that would have certainly affected the ISIDS. So it's it's been on the chopping block temporarily once oh. or twice over the years, um, yeah. but thankfully it has pretty good bipartisan support, as was evidenced back in, I think it was 2007, where there was uh, there was a large tax bill that was out there, and one of the things it proposed was getting rid of the IC desk, and we had senators from the far left, the far right, in between, you know, anyone, yeah. folks that had privately held uh, manufacturers and growers in their states standing up for the IC desk and uh, yeah. uh, getting it preserved, and so, um, and that we had a min, sort of mini version of that with the Trump tax cuts as well, yeah. Um, but, but yeah, long answer to your your question. It's it's been around, but uh, just not as well um, publicized due to some confusion about whether these incentives are are still around in many cases. And as you pointed out, you really need a specialist in this area to determine you know if you're going to qualify. In many cases, sometimes you make everything from scratch in the U.S. You export it directly. You know, not sure. not, not too many things that that you can mess up there in terms of qualify, but nuances like the product leaving, possibly coming back, examples we've talked about, and some of these other scenarios like architectural and engineering and some of the, the fun export stories that we've got of things being called, uh, you know, uh, we could almost call this episode, um, you know, I can't believe it's an export stories. Oh, good. I, and, oh, we definitely want to get into those. I like that. Yeah, but I, yeah. uh, just another question. Um, so, you know, you had mentioned to me before this conversation that you uh, instruct at various CPA events and such. So how are, other than this podcast, how are you spreading the word about this, you know, tax tool? Yes. Yeah. So we are, um, you know, as I said, most of our uh, work and ways where avenues that we're able to help people with the incentive is through the uh, special specialist advisors or trusted advisors, I should say, that they work with already. And um, yeah. we don't do anything but the ICDS. This is our only service offering. So uh, oh. accountants, including three of the ten largest in the country, and uh, small mom and pop, uh, you know, accountants as well, and everywhere in between, will use us as sort of the expert that they'll call when they have a potential scenarios. So we do a lot of educating on this to uh, accountants, to uh, you know attorneys, wealth advisors. We do a lot of uh, continuing education programs. We're going to have a lot more coming up, especially when we get past September 15th, which is in October 15th, big deadlines for, uh, for uh, accountants. We do a lot of um, education. So that's a lot of how we get the word out. Uh, things like the District Export Council, where you and I met back in, in May in, yeah. in D.C., and, um, you know, uh, yeah, presenting and sponsoring these events. Uh, you one of your uh, your second or last or last guest, a friend of mine, Luke Lindbergh, uh, the yes. trade czar in South Dakota. Luke has been great in uh, helping us find, connect, connect uh, us with companies that, you know, are making products um, or, you know, that, that are producing them at least partially in South Dakota that yeah. are not aware of this incentive because their accountants may not be aware or their accountants may be aware of the, the basics of it, but they may not know that some of these nuanced examples that we're going to 
talk about a little bit, like like the uh, like the Ferrari World example, which it, it was ultimately built. Just to just to reiterate, it was a Yay. long pause, but it was ultimately built. So you okay. can you can check that out on your your next uh, uh, trip over the UAE. But uh, but yeah, that's so the, the, all those different avenues for education are the ways that we're letting people uh, know about this and the the the, the, the by just the number of times that I've heard, boy, I wish I would have, you know, known about this in the past. And is yeah. there any way I can go back? And unfortunately, you can't go back. Uh, you can only claim the benefits from the time you have an IC disc established and forward. But right. uh, we're doing our best to try to try to let people know. Good, good. Well, we're trying to do that for you too here. So, um, let's talk about. What are some current issues in world markets that are putting pressure on experts, exporters in the area of tax liability? Because yeah, so I, you know, certainly, just just general non-tax issues, but that relate to tax are many who are used to getting this IC disc benefit. Certainly during the pandemic, uh, when they were having, you know, you might think the obvious one was well, they they couldn't find anything they couldn't ship things out of the US or or the people they're selling to couldn't export yeah. so they're, they're they you know certainly they were uh, affected by that that's the first thing that would come to one's mind but you know remember before you export it you or somebody in the US has got to at least partially produce it in the US so even getting the supplies in was a oh, big sure. problem so it's like a lot of our suppliers were like boy we you know, well, we got to manufacture it first before we can export it. And until we get the, the chips in, there's no way we can, uh, you know, we can even start to think about, you know, manufacturing. So that was that was the big one, of course, um, uh, you know, uh, yeah. during the pandemic. Yeah. And on the, the positive things, one of the one of the what positive side, one of the things we talked about is, I guess, with the current administration's focus on, um, you know, remember all the, the talk at, at the conference about you know, Africa and the next big, you know, consumer mar uh, market and and right. uh, all the things that the government's doing to facilitate trade with Africa, that, that's something, you know, uh, positive that hopefully will be a market for people like all of Luke Lindbergh's growers in, in South yeah. Dakota that have a new market for their their access. So we're, uh, you know, that that would affect their tax liability if they're able to sell export versus uh, versus domestic and help them get back uh, a little bit of the money that they might have to spend on you know uh entering a new a new market uh, right so, right yeah. i think we learned at that conference you you correct me if i'm wrong but something like nigeria is this exploding market where the population might is going to exceed the u.s population or something like that did i hear that correctly oh wow yeah i am uh, not sure about the i, I might not have been in in that that session, but certainly yeah. about Nigeria and others just completely exploding with open opening up the trade. Um, certainly, we have a, a gentleman that we met through the the conference that is helping uh, farmers in the U.S. He was just over in the uh, the DRC, the the Democratic uh, Republic of Congo, and I know that they're loosening up uh, trade uh, tremendously. But yeah, it would it wouldn't surprise me for certain markets at all that uh, if you took uh you know a, a few of those nations or maybe even just some of them for for certain products that they would be yeah. you know in some total maybe a bigger market than yeah. we have in the u.s for certain certain crops or yeah yeah okay all right 
So, you know, I guess the best way for us to, you know, really understand the concept and value is for you to give us some examples and share some, you know, a few of your stories. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. so we'll proceed with our, uh, um, I can't believe that's an export story. Okay, (laughs) I like that. Right, right. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so one thing we want to talk about that's very, very often overlooked um, is software. So, um, you know, most people have their software, you know, produced in for the in large part in India um, or elsewhere outside the U.S., you know, for the, the nuts and bolts sort of programming. But right. generally software that that hits the market that U.S. taxpayers have, it's generally conceived in the U.S. Might They might do some prototypical type things in, in the U.S. and have that right. original conception in the US and then they finish the the testing in the, in the US or they you know they they do testing and quality control or that that, that last bit of production in the United States. So right. even though there's a big a big piece that's that's uh you know nuts and bolts programming of concepts that they want that's done in India but that software might still be substantially developed in the United States whether it's a video game or whether it's a, a you know yeah. an application for uh, you know, companies to use to manage their inventory or whatever right. the the latest uh, the latest uh, hot n- new you know software plays are. Well, those um, programs that are substantially developed in the U.S. but that have users outside the United States can qualify for the ICDS. And the IRS has made it very clear their position that software licenses do indeed qualify for the ICDS. Oh. So think about this example. Betsy, where we've got someone that's, we've come up with a software idea, you and I in the US, and we put some money into it and and do some uh, modules and pieces of it here in the US, then we have it built out in India, and then we bring it back to the US and we finish it and test it, polish it up here, so it's still substantially developed in the United States. We license it to General Electric, and General Electric has users all around the world, right? Well, you know, you would think, you know, boy, I can't believe that's an export because, you know, it was large part made outside the U.S. and it's being sold to a U.S. company and, uh, or licensed to a U.S. company, General Electric. And, uh, you know, how could that be an, an export? And the answer is it most certainly would be because any of General Electric's users that use the product outside the United States or seats, as they call them in the, the yeah. software world, uh, let's say General Electric has 35% of the uses of the software outside the U.S. in a given year. Well, 35% of the income from that then would be eligible for the IC disc. And generally, you wouldn't even have to ask the General Electric, in our example, the customer, because you would know where, you know, generally where it's being downloaded from IP addresses and whatnot. So you'd be able to rely on that to uh, determine how much you'd want to qualify. So software is a hugely, hugely overlooked one. Um, good, good. Th- that that's okay. one that's that's yeah. That's we really try to try to um, you know get a lot of education out there on that one. Sure. Um, another one's distributors and brokers. Um, so again, I make something uh, in Ohio. I sell it to you in Tennessee. As long as you take title to it, even if it's just a flash title transfer, as long as you have. Uh, the benefits and burdens of ownership for even a, a split second, and then you end up exporting it, you know, you have some profit on that sale. I have some profit on the sale to you. As we talked about earlier, 
both both parties are eligible. We're we're both eligible to claim benefits on that product as long as there's as long as you don't further manufacture it in the U.S. before you send it out. So that's what, another another big one. What is the percentage that has to be manufactured in the U.S.? Is there a fixed? Yeah. yeah. So it's kind of an abstract test to say substantial transformation. Yeah. Um, you know, you could get a thousand dollar ounce of gold and just melt it down into a ring and only put you know thirty dollars of labor in into doing that. So only sure. you know three percent, right? Is, is the labor that you're putting into it, but you substantially transformed it. Um, but if you don't want to rely on that type of definition, there is a great safe harbor, which says that if 20% or more of the cost of goods sold are uh, attributable to U.S. labor and factory burden, and that includes packaging and installation, by the way, for that test, then it's automatically considered U.S. manufactured. So 20% of the cost of goods sold has have to be U.S. labor, factory burden, packaging, um, and, and uh, uh, you know, you know, uh, assembly, all that, that right. kind of stuff counts. Yeah. Right. So we've got some clients. Another great story is a company that does promotional type products. Everything they do is made in China. Everything that they sell, parts are made in China. They do a little bit of just screwing things together and packaging, and you know, putting their yeah. name on it or the customer's name on it. They do that in the United, and then they export some of that product. Um, you know, even though you wouldn't consider it hardcore manufacturing, but if you look at an analysis of their cost of goods sold, let's say it's a dollar for an item, if they've got you know twelve cents of labor to put it together, and and they've got uh, ten cents of packaging, that's twenty two cents out of a dollar. So they they've met that threshold. Threshold. So twenty yeah. percent is the sort of safe harbor. Yeah. Yeah. And it seemed like it'd be that hard to meet that for, mm -hmm. you know, the, you know, yep. a real, you know, a real export type of a move. Well, that's, that's yeah. cool. Good to know. That's absolutely right. Yeah. And then one of, uh, one of our, uh, our mutual, a mutual friend of ours who's been kind enough to, um, you know, be a, a client reference um, is Plitco, uh, 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 CEO, Kim Smith, um, you know, they're a, a company that does um, oil pipeline uh, mm -hmm. equipment. So obviously a lot of that is used outside the U.S. But the opportunity in the oil and gas industry that is often overlooked is offshore drilling, right? So if you've got um, equipment that's used on an offshore rig and expected to be used out there for, um, you know, expected requisite period of time, which typically... Uh, is going to be three years after the sale, but but can be less. Um, those offshore rigs are considered outside of the United States as well, and, and because they're in international waters. I mean, what if uh, your oil drilling equipment is used in this project in this country, and then you move it for another project? Does it only get one? Yeah, great, dividend? great question. Yeah, if something is used. It, uh, in the United States. So if you're the manufacturer of it and, uh, you know, it, it's got to get out of the country within a year or by, by you or somebody else has got to get outside of the country for a year. And then it's got to have expected use outside the U.S. generally for the for the next uh, most of the next three years. Um, but if you are selling used equipment, let's say. I'm. You know, a lot of the automation equipment that is state of the art here 10, 15 years ago, I'm sorry, yeah, is, is state of the art now in other parts of the world, right? We've got right, companies right. that take 
yeah, automation. So as long as something has been used in the U.S., if it never leaves the, the U.S., that that kind of disqualifies it. But if you if I I'm a broker and I buy for an engineer or whatever, I buy used equipment like automation equipment. I buy used equipment and I ship it over, uh, sell it to customers in Malaysia or Thailand or India or wherever. That certainly qualifies. The fact that it was used in the U.S. before it left the U.S. does not prohibit it from being being uh, being qualified. So, oh, okay. um, yep, yep, yep. Okay. Now, now, if I sell it to a you know a, a U.S. customer and then we know they use it for five years in the U.S. and then send it to a foreign project, I certainly I won't be able to claim benefit there because it, it didn't get out within within a year as the manufacturer. But if I'm coming onto the scene new and saying, oh, there's a piece of used equipment. It's only been used in the U.S. and I uh, export it, then certainly that that qualifies. And on, on the uh, international waters, uh, in addition to um, offshore drilling, also things used on cruise ships, such as U.S. made or U.S. grown food or other products that are not consumed until the ships are out in international waters are, uh, you know, are, are considered used outside the U.S. as well. So that's uh, uh, satellites um, or yeah. uh, uh, going back to another another guest of yours, our national deck president, uh, Jonathan. Yes. Shooks, right. There stuff's used yeah. used on the used on the used on the moon. Right. Without, right. Uh, the, <laughs> right. So, you know, again, as long as it, it, uh, it it's at least somewhat produced in the U.S. and it doesn't get fabricated by anyone else in the U.S. before it goes to the moon. Then uh, you know if it's if its use is just for for the moon, then uh, that's how you would measure its use to outside the U.S. So if it goes to moon mission for three days, is used there, and then comes back to the U.S. and just you know sits there until the next moon mission two years down the road for transportation property, you can measure the use not by the days it's spent outside the U.S. but the miles traversed outside the United States. So, <laughs> Yeah. So whether it's moon landing, uh, yeah, moon rover stuff, or whether it's uh, um, you know things that are used on on uh, cruise ships or shipping containers, containers yeah. are uh, uh, another one that are you know that certainly they traverse more miles outside the U.S. than inside. Right. Um, yep. Yeah, and uh, yep. Yeah, another a couple other uh, stories that are always that just kind of make people say, "Wow, I can't can't believe that." Um, you know, our, our food food items. Most people. Think about the IC disc and accounts. A lot of people think about it as an incentive for manufacturers who export, right. but we forget about food. It's not just manufactured, it's manufactured, produced, grown, or extracted in the US. So certainly uh cattle, uh, you know, any type of livestock that that gets exported uh, as is. Um, or if you pay a uh meat locker to process it, but you still have ownership that whole time, and then you have them drop ship and export it for you, you'd be able to to qualify. Um, so so food is another one that's overlooked a lot. We talked about architecture and architects, engineers, recyclers. That's a great one. In fact, we're going to the huh. East Scrap Convention in uh, New Orleans. Well, well I'm sorry, September. say that again. Um, what it, convention? Yeah, it's it's I'm sorry. I'm sorry, it's called East East Scrap. So electronics scraps, so a subdivision oh. of you know, you think of you think of scrap yards, card, cars, and you know other oh, big, yeah. you know metal things, but each right. scrap is a subset of this industry where it's really uh, you know all the think about how quickly our uh, laptops and phones and things like that get uh, you know become obsolete 
And right. some of that stuff is, you know, a lot of that stuff will come back to these, these uh, scrap processors who have very sophisticated equipment in many cases to shred this stuff and separate the uh, materials. But in, in general, that industry, uh, not just e-scrap, but scrap in general, they will extract the most profitable metals. And, and when, right. the reason they're profitable in many cases is just because they're in demand outside of the United States. Right. Um, so, so that's an industry that does a ton of exporting. And um, so, you know, recycling of, of all kinds of products, uh, um, you know, can, can qualify. One of our, uh, another one of our client references, um, uh, you know, has contracts with the U.S. military, which, uh, you know, has a lot of stuff become, and U.S. government, Department of Defense that becomes obsolete quickly. And so they will extract the profitable stuff, sell it, a lot of its export, and you know, split split the uh, split the profits with the with the government. So who says there's no enterprise in government? <laughs> uh, not me, not me. Um, mm -hmm. My goodness, there's just there's just a lot, and and so you know, um, I just hope that people are listening and starting to think about what they're doing, and if there's an opportunity here. Um, you know, I mean, that's that's the idea of our conversation today. There's probably an opportunity out there for a lot of people that just hadn't really been it had it hadn't been explained to them. So I hope, I hope that's what we've done. So yeah, yes. I think we covered. Hopefully, some folks listening are are surprised by some of those things being. Oh, I think uh, they will be. Considered. I think they will be. <laughs> So, oh, uh, listen, this was great, Ahmed. Thank you so much for being Thank here for having me. And, and chatting with me about this. Um, to our listeners, this, is, this was a really important conversation, and we'd love to keep it going about this episode. You know, you can reach out to me on exportstoriespodcast.com. That's where all our current and past podcasts are available. I'll be posting uh, web information about Quantitex, and you can ask questions or post comments on the episode page. We're also on Facebook and LinkedIn. This is a community of exporters here, so let your voice be heard. Um, anyway, thanks again, Amit. It's good talking to you. Thank you, Betsy. Thank you so much for listening to Export Stories. Perhaps you have a good export story that you would like to share with us or a comment about today's podcast. You can send your ideas and comments to our website at exportstoriespodcast.com or to Betsy Olam on LinkedIn. Subscribe to our newsletter at exportstoriespodcast.com so we can alert you of upcoming episodes and share resources with you. We're building a community of export storytellers, so please share this podcast with your friends who have interest in exporting. 